1 Samuel 5, beginning at first verse. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on, on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod's step, step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what should we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the, of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought the ark of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Uh, it is. Page 276, if you close your Bibles, and beginning at verse 1 of chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you'll be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Now then, get a, a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we shall know that it has not 
that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the Ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the Ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abdibinab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Thank you so much, Rachel. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open. I think it's page 275. And let's pray as we come to these words. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts and you know our needs. And we pray that as we come to this, your living words, by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see your glory, to know you better, that we might leave this evening as those who, having heard you in the power of your Spirit, are changed by you to be more like your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Every so often we have a conversation in my family. Members of my family, led by my wife, ask me, can we get a dog? And I say, of course. Eyes light up. And then I continue, only if I do not have to do anything to look after the dog, and the light in their eyes goes out. I wonder if you think I'm being mean, but to be honest, I'm just trying to tell them the truth. I could not handle a dog. It wouldn't fit neatly into my life. It would change my life. And I will be honest with you, I do not want that. A pet rock, yeah, they can get one of those anytime. A goldfish, I think I could stretch to that. But a dog, no, just wouldn't fit with the way I live. Now, one of the ways we mistreat God is by thinking 
that he should fit neatly into our lives. After all, all the things we buy in the shops are, are customized to fit our desires and our needs. That's the way things work. So why can't God be the same? Surely he can be customized to, to fit in. Surely he can shrink down to fit my pocket, my agenda. And the reading we've just had from chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel explodes that kind of thinking by showing us the undomesticated glory of God. And it's been my prayers, we come to these words, that that is what we will see, the undomesticated glory of God. Now, these chapters answer the question that last week's reading ended with. Do you remember, Israel had faced a massive defeat against the Philistines, and the ark of God had been captured and taken away. God himself led into exile. And Eli's daughter-in-law said with her dying breath, where is the glory? That's the question. Where is the glory? And judging by appearances, the glory is gone. God has left the building. But of course, you shouldn't judge by appearances. I have a couple of things to see to summarize God's time in exile, because things are not as they appear. Here's my first headline. The Philistines can't live with the God of Exodus. His undomesticated glory is too much for them. They can't live with the God of Exodus. And that's what we see all through chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6. God is at work according to a very specific pattern. What he's doing here will be memorable to you and to the Israelites, immediately recognizable as all of the stuff he did during the Exodus when his people were slaves in Egypt and he intervened to set them free. God is following his Exodus playbook, reenacting it, not in Egypt this time, but in Philistine territory. That is what's going on around God's ark, the ark of the covenant. Now, I promised last week that I'd say a little bit more about this ark of the covenant. What would it look like? Well, you have to imagine a, a box, quite a large box. On top of it, you have two cherubim, angels, with the, the tips of their wings touching each other. Inside it, you have signs of God's power and presence during the Exodus. You've got the tablets of the law, Aaron's rod that budded, and a jar of the manna that sustained them. And the Ark of the Covenant was meant to belong in the, the tabernacle, in the most holy place. And in, in the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant is the focal point of three things God does. It's a symbol of the God who reveals, rules, and reconciles. Reveals because it contains his, his words, the law, the tablets. Rules because it's a throne. Maybe you can cast your mind back to last week. God is enthroned between the cherubim. It's like he sits on top of it. And reconciles because the top of the ark, the mercy seat, is an altar where God's people are forgiven when blood is shed. That's the stuff the ark of the covenant stands for. And when you think about it like that, it really is a scandal that the people of Israel tried to treat it as a talisman, said everything about the way they tried to use God. And we saw last week that he would not be used. He would not be a talisman for Israel. And tonight we see he won't be a trophy for the Philistines either. He won't fit neatly into Israel's way of doing things or the Philistines either. Following his Exodus playbook, He's going to stretch out his mighty arm and get glory among the nations. So the first thing he's going to do from his Exodus playbook is expose false gods. 
You see that dramatically at the start of chapter 5. Verse 2, they take the Ark of the Covenant and put it in Dagon's temple. It's like they're putting him in Dagon's trophy cabinet. And in fact, it's worse than that. By setting the Ark up beside Dagon, it's like they're saying, the Lord of Israel is Dagon's servant, like his butler or something. They put him next to Dagon in that way. But the next morning, verse 3, awkwardly for all of the Philistines, Dagon has fallen face down in front of the ark of the God of Israel, worshipping him. The timing shows joining in with the morning sacrifice. Very awkward indeed. So they pick him up and, and put him back where he belongs. Dagon is back in his place. But it's even more awkward the next morning. Verse 4, Dagon is fallen down in worship again, and this time decapitated with his hands cut off. A very clear sign to the Philistines that God is the Lord. He has no rivals. Before him, Dagon has no heads, no ability to think, no wisdom, and no hands, no ability to act. And it sends a crystal clear message, just like he humiliated the gods of Egypt. God is humiliating Dagon and showing that he is a false god. Dagon is the kind of god who cannot carry you through life. You have to carry him. You have to pick him up when he falls over. And God says, that is not a real God. Let me show you the real thing. He exposes false gods. Second part of God's Exodus playbook. He plagues the oppressor. We see that Dagon has no hands, but verse 6 we read, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. The Philistines thought they had won. But I ask you, do they look like winners in this passage? Is this what victory normally looks like? They're struggling. Verse 8, they're in outright panic, and they start trying to move things around. They take the ark from Gath to Ashdod. Maybe that will help, but no. The hand of the Lord is heavy against Ashdod as well. Verse 10, they try to take it to Ekron, but I quite like this, that the people of Ekron are too, too savvy for that. No, 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 we get what you're trying to do. Ark of the God of Israel, you just want to kill us. No, we're not having it. And so they are, completely hapless, as they try to get the Ark out of their territory. They don't look like winners at all. What's happening is that God is plaguing the oppressor, just as he did in Egypt. And so the people of Ekron say, verse 11, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand, hear that again, it's an Exodus way of talking about God at work. God's hand was very heavy against it. He plagues the oppressor. Next bit of his Exodus playbook, he doesn't come back empty-handed. You might know this, that... Um, during the Exodus, as the people of Israel leave, the Egyptians give them gold and silver to take with them. Well, this is basically what we're seeing here as well. Have a look at uh, chapter 6, verse 3. <coughs> the Philistines consult their priests. The priests say, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. That's what they suggest. We have these funny gold objects. It's, it's a bit of sort of pagan thinking. That they're kind of making it up as they go, trying to make a difference. But these tumors, because they're experiencing the plague, and these rats, hoping that these 
precious golden objects will somehow be an acceptable guilt offering before the Lord. It's a sign of their submission to the God of Israel. And the priests even have the exodus in mind. Did you see that? Chapter 6, verse 5. Um, make models of the tumors and the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? The end of last chapter, we were asking, where is the glory? And here, we hear the Philistines saying, give glory to Israel's God in verse 5. He is getting glory, even when it looked like everything was lost. That's the last bit of the Exodus playbook. God gets glory from the nations. So what looked like defeat turns out to be a triumph. What looked like exile becomes a victory lap of the Lord through enemy territory. God gets glory among the nations. Now, the Philistines, I don't know what you make of them, they're not entirely gullible. As silly as that stuff about tumors and rats is, you couldn't call it scientific, but they kind of come up with an experiment. Do you hear that in the reading? They want to be absolutely sure that this is God at work and not just a very, very, very strange coincidence. And so they devise a test. Again, not exactly laboratory conditions, but they're doing their best. They say, take some milk cows, separate them from their calves, and get those milk cows to lead the ark. And if they leave their calves going against nature, going against instinct, then we'll know that it really was the God of Israel and not just chance. And verse 12, they do, and the cows go straight toward Beth Shemesh in Israel, lowing all the way, because God gets glory from the nations. There is no doubt at this point. That is what God is underlining to the Philistines. He is God, and they need to fear him. Did you hear it in chapter 5 as Rachel was reading it? They kept saying, the ark of the God of Israel, the ark of the God of Israel. Quite a mouthful, but the Philistines really learnt it by the end of the ark's stay with them. And just imagine at this point how the Israelite reader might feel as they see the Philistines struggling with the God of Exodus. They would be punching the air as they hear about God humiliating the Philistines. You know what else? They'd be laughing their heads off because it's funny, actually. It's hilarious to see Dagon collapsed in front of the God he thought he'd beaten. It's hilarious to see all this nonsense about tumor, tumors and rats. It's like they'd be thinking, whatever will these pagans think of next? You can almost hear the Benny Hill theme tune as the Philistines take the ark from one town to another, and oh no, don't bring it here, send it over there. It's hilarious. And then halfway through chapter six, the Israelite laughter stops and turns into an awkward silence. Because it turns out that the joke is on them. No, the Philistines can't live with God's undomesticated glory, and neither can the Israelites. No, the God of Israel is not a mascot to get Israel cheering. He's a holy God, and his undomesticated glory can't be put in their pocket either. So here's my second headline. The Israelites can't live with the God of Leviticus. So verse 13, there is rejoicing as the ark returns at harvest time. Verse 14, there's even a Joshua, just like the last time the ark came into the land of promise. Verse 15, they're offering, offering sacrifices, and the Philistines see it, and they head back home. But almost the moment they've left, Everything goes wrong. And we see that the Israelites are no better than the Philistines. 
Verse 19, they end up getting struck by God. And if the Philistines had an Exodus problem, the Israelites have a Leviticus problem. Leviticus, the third book of the Bible after Exodus, which deals with how the people of God can live with a holy one in their midst, with how they are to treat him with reverent fear. And the people of Israel cannot do that, even though they have Levites among them. <coughs> so verse 14, they offer the cows to God. Problem, God's word says only male sacrifices. That's literally in chapter 1 of Leviticus, chapter 1, verse 3. They should have known. Verse 19, they look into the ark, which nobody is allowed to do. Even Indiana Jones knows you don't do that. And yet they do and are struck down. And so just like the Philistines, they end up sending the ark away. Isn't that extraordinary? Silly Philistines can't cope with it, sending it on. But here are the people of God doing exactly the same thing because they cannot cope with his undomesticated glory. Like the Philistines, they send the ark on to the town of Kiriath-Jerim. Now from Joshua 9, we know that Kiriath-Jerim was originally a pagan city. It's where the deceptive Gibeonites settled. So if you like... The ark is in the land of Israel, but not among the people of Israel, in a way. And there it will stay for years, still in a kind of exile. And it'll stay there until the Lord is ready to renew his people under his anointed king and build a house for his name. But just like last week, our reading ends with a pregnant question. Have a look at verse 20. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? That's exactly the question. Who can stand before the God you can't put in your pocket? Who can endure his undomesticated glory? How is that possible? Next week, we will begin to see what it looks like for God's people to stand before him. But before we move on to that, Tonight, let's acknowledge the holy God. Let's see his undomesticated glory. Let's refuse to customize him to our needs or, or fit him into our pocket, make him work to our agenda. As we've seen tonight, that's a mistake you can make whether you're one of God's people or not. And as we finish, I have three ways for us to avoid doing that. Here's the first one. Say no to pragmatism. Say no to pragmatism. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, pragmatism is when you are getting things done and that's all that matters. Can I confess, I find it invigorating to be around pragmatic people who get things done. They're not always just thinking about the big picture or, or blue skies. They're just working to make stuff happen. I love that. It's really exciting. People like that, as I say, they're getting things done. But pragmatism is a terrible guide when it comes to obeying God. And we cannot put human pragmatism in the driving seat when it comes to our life before God. Because human pragmatism works with the practicalities as we see them and might entirely miss what God is calling us to do. You can imagine some pragmatists in Beth Shemesh, can't you? Oh, look, some cows. Let's offer them to the Lord. That must be why they're here. And after all, why would he mind? Why would he mind? That's the pragmatist's guiding question. And it shows how completely out of step we might be with the God whose ways are not our ways. That's the mentality that shrinks God down to fit our agenda and our understanding. 
Say no to pragmatism. All we do for God, we must do his way. So that obedience to his word, that's what needs to be in the driving seat. So that any other pragmatic instincts we have follow from that and not the other way around. Let me sharpen this by sharing a way I am tempted to pragmatism in following Jesus and in church. I long to see people come to know Jesus for themselves. I don't want to put any barriers up in the way of that. That is good. That is a good thing. And yet, it becomes a problem if that's my only concern and I become pragmatic about everything else in relation to that. I've been around churches where people were so careful only to do and say what people completely new to Christianity would be able to understand and never to do and say things that might offend them that in a terrible irony, they ended up soft-pedaling the gospel, even though that was originally their stated motive. Say no to pragmatism. And the reason why this matters so much is because God's ways are not our ways. And the, the way he's chosen to work regularly humbles human wisdom and pragmatism. What is the greatest display of divine power and glory? We've not read it in our chapters. Where do you see that? You see that on the cross of Jesus, in his death, in his weakness, in his defeat. All of these things human pragmatism would say no to, and yet they are God's wisdom. That is how God shows his glory. On the cross, human wisdom, human pragmatism, human planning, it's all humbled. So say no to pragmatism. Put it in its place. Second, say no to panic. Say no to panic. These chapters show us even when everything looks lost, God is still at work. All by himself. He gets glory for himself. And that is why in a book named after Samuel, Samuel isn't on the scene. He's not in the spotlight and hasn't been since chapter 4. Uh, Sorry, chapter 3. Now, we will meet Samuel again next week, and we will see how God works through him. But the reason why Samuel's not in the spotlight is that we and Israel both need to know that what God's people need most is not Samuel's, but God's. God's. So say no to panic. And just think, why would God use his Exodus playbook when he's in enemy territory? He could have done something completely different. He could have done a new thing. Again, I think it's because he's trying to teach us, his people, not to panic. To show us, even if everything looks like it's gone wrong, God does not change. He remains faithful even when we are faithless. And he continues to act for his glory. This God doesn't need our protection. He doesn't need our pragmatism. And he doesn't need our panic. Remember that when the bottom drops out of your world and all the wheels seem to have come off and everything looks like it's going wrong. God knows what he's doing and he can be trusted. Again, let's develop this a little bit. One source of panic for Christians, I think, is the fact that we are exiles in the world. That's how the Bible calls us to see ourselves. One Peter tells us we are exiles. An exile is an uncomfortable place to be because we long to belong. And in this country, we've had centuries of Christian heritage. And so it's painful to realize that we no longer have the moral high ground just for believing what the Bible says. 
painful to realize that we've got a place on the margins. And so one way we respond is through panic. We struggle, we chafe at our place on the margins. We try to claim our rights. We try to recover the moral high ground. But what we see here in these chapters about God going into exile will comfort us and keep us from panicking. Because we realize we're not alone in exile. In fact, we're not even breaking new ground in exile. God has gone ahead. Think about this. God knows what it's like to be in enemy territory and to have been led there as a captive. So don't panic when you find yourself in exile. Instead, realize whose footsteps you're following. Our our service began with Hebrews 13. Um, Here's some more verses from just before where Scott read. Verse 12, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Do you hear what the writer is saying there? Go, go out of the city gates, go into exile. Why go? Because you know whose footsteps you're following, and you know where Jesus' footsteps lead. Yes, to the cross, and then out of the empty tomb, and then to the throne of heaven, and then to the city that is eternal and lasts forever. Don't panic, because you're following him. Say no to panic. And then much more briefly, finally, briefly because we'll come back to a lot of this next week, say no to prayerlessness. Say no to prayerlessness. God doesn't need us, doesn't need our planning, doesn't even need our prayers, but we need him. And prayer is how he's chosen to work in and through us. So say no to prayerlessness and take every opportunity you can to acknowledge that God is in control and we are not. That God is wise and we are not. That God is unstoppable in power and we are not. In prayer, that's what we get to acknowledge. And more than that, that's how we get to align ourselves with the Lord's will and what he's calling us to do. Say no to pragmatism. Say no to panic and say no to prayerlessness. So that instead of trying to change God to fit with your plans, the Holy Spirit might change us so that we might fit into his plans in Christ. Let's take a quiet moment for a moment there. and Maybe just reflect on perhaps what it is you need to say your loudest no to. Pragmatism, so that your thinking guides what happens. Panic, because it's hard to remember that the Lord is in control. Prayerlessness because sometimes you forget that you need him. Let's take a quiet moment, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Lord God, we long to give you glory and to recognize you for who you are, not to make you shrink down to fit our terms, but to see you as you are in Christ. By your spirit, enlarge our vision of you. Lift our eyes to see you in your glory. And might that put into perspective 
everything else we see, everything else we struggle with. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.